The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, let me invite you now to uh, reach out your hand, stretch out your hand, and grab a Bible. If you need one, there's one in the pew rack there in front of you, a blue Bible. Uh, Let's turn together. It's our tradition to open the scriptures together. You want to open up to page 992. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, If uh, you need a Bible, again, there's one around you. If you see someone who doesn't have one, maybe you want to share with them. It's very important that we open the scriptures together and also as we keep the Bible open together as we hear its word for us. Uh, And as we're doing this, we want to remember the fact that uh, we have a great reason to celebrate today, a great reason for our hope, and that is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus Uh, But I was reminded this past week, as many of us were, seeing on uh, this couple days ago the the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The word was often used describing the efforts gained to rebuild that as the fact that uh, Notre Dame would, would be resurrected from the ashes like a great phoenix, resurrected from the ashes and be built up again. And uh, there is temptation, I think, for us to use the term resurrection to refer to the rebuilding of things rather than with special emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what resurrection is all about. And what we're looking at this morning in 1 Timothy 3, I want to acknowledge to you, is uh, somewhat of an unusual Easter text. 1 Timothy 3 might not be among the texts that a person might think that they might hear on Easter Sunday. Nevertheless, uh, this text has a great deal to teach us about the resurrection. And so regardless of who you are today, uh, whether Easter Sunday is uh, among other Sundays that you're in church, or perhaps Easter Sunday is set apart and special, or it's been a while since you've been in church or considered Jesus, I want every single one of us to come to this text expectant for what we might learn about this truth of resurrection. So, it's our practice here in this church to pray together before we read God's Word and ask the Spirit to help us understand. And so that's what we're going to do together now. So would you bow your head with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we we come before you now with your Word open before us. How thankful we are, Lord, to be here today on this Easter morning to hear the promises that the tomb is empty and that resurrection means that we are forgiven through Jesus' name. And so, Lord, as we look to the Bible, would you please teach us? Would you please send your Spirit now to illuminate our minds and give us understanding and fill our hearts that we might believe and trust in your Son today? Lord, be with us. Be with me as I preach. Be with all of us as we hear your Word. And so, Lord, come, we pray, in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now, friends, hear God's word from 1 Timothy and chapter 3, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever and ever and ever. Again, I invite you to keep your Bible open here as we seek to understand what this has really anything to do with Easter, and hopefully we'll see that it has quite a bit to do. Uh, let me first give you just some context here. The letter of 1 Timothy is written uh, by the Apostle Paul to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor that Paul is sending with information to equip him to live his Christian life and live and minister the Christian faith uh, in the people uh, in Ephesus, around the people, with the people, to live out the Christian faith there in Ephesus. And I want you to notice there in verse 15 that Paul is saying he may delay even though he hopes to come. But he wants Timothy to understand and he wants the church in Ephesus to understand, verse 15, how someone ought to behave in the household of God. Let me just say here at the very beginning that how we behave is linked first of all to what we believe. What we believe dictates how we behave. So rather than focusing on the behavior, actually, Paul focuses on the belief. And so I want to ask you today, what do you believe? What do you believe about Easter? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the purpose and meaning and significance of the empty tomb? What do you understand about that? Uh, It's interesting, I was reading an article this past week that uh, actually my aunt shared with me. Uh, my aunt is uh, not a Christian. She does not acknowledge Jesus in any uh, capacity as Savior and Lord. And she was uh, sharing with me the fact that uh, there was this article written about the fact that most pastors really don't believe what they teach, but because they might lose their jobs if they say they don't, they just go on kind of faking it for the sake of the people and patronizing them. And uh, I had a number of responses to this article. (laughs) Uh, But one of which was with deep conviction in my heart to say no. No. Uh, I believe Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And I want you to as well deeply within your hearts. And Paul wants us to as well here in this text. Paul writes in verse 16 that this is a great confession The mystery of godliness, and that might be a little bit uh, strange to us. The New Testament uses the word mystery not to be something that is baffling or obscure or concealed, but it intends to represent something that used to be hidden but is now revealed. What was once a mystery but now revealed, namely Jesus Christ himself and the message of the gospel, which is what Paul summarizes here for us in verse 16. And it is a great mystery, not because it is greatly obscured, but because this truth, what is confessed here in verse 16, is of infinite importance. More important than anything else in your entire life is the substance of verse 16. And I want to say that because you and I live in a world of 24-hour news cycles and it's constantly breaking news this and breaking news that. When everything is breaking news, nothing is breaking news. Except this. 
the greatest truth in all the world, the greatest truth you will hear today and throughout the course of your life, Jesus Christ, his person and work, and it's all in verse 16. And it is very strange, actually, that Paul presents the gospel here in this way. I want you to, we're just looking at verse 16 today. There are three pairs of statements in verse 16. Or uh, three pairs of statements, six verses in total, six statements in total, which really has led us to assume that what Paul is quoting here is actually from a hymn that the first uh, early church would sing together. And like Lori mentioned at the beginning of our service, sometimes truth is first sung before it is really understood. And that's the case here in 1 Timothy 3. That this is likely a Christian hymn of the first century. And Jesus is the subject of every single one of these six statements. And what we're going to see together is three things. We want to look at what the resurrection means, first of all. What the resurrection means. Secondly, what the resurrection matters. And thirdly, the difference that the resurrection is supposed to make. The meaning, the matter, and the difference that it makes. The meaning, the matter, and the difference that it makes. Okay? All in verse 16. So first of all, this first pair of statements in verse 16, unveiling the meaning of the resurrection. Look at your Bible. In verse 16, Paul writes under divine inspiration that he, Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. What Paul is doing here is he is introducing us to the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus that we all want to know, the story that is almost 2,000 years old, the story of Jesus' earthly ministry, and what we have here is actually a summary of his entire earthly ministry, even though it might not seem like it, from the cradle to the cross, from the grave and the rolled away stone, but it doesn't immediately appear like it. And when you tell a story, you like to begin at the beginning, right? If you were going to tell a story about your life, you would say, well, I was born to such and such a parents in such and such a place at such and such a time. But notice that's not how Paul tells the story of Jesus. Paul explains that Jesus steps onto the scene of human history as he is manifested in the flesh. And he says it this way because he is trying to reveal this essential truth that when Jesus Christ was born, he did not begin. When Jesus was born, he did not begin. That is to say that the birth of Jesus was not the beginning of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, but rather it was the manifestation of the living God who took into union with himself human flesh, a true human nature. Uh, what we have here right away is this clear, definite statement about the real and true humanity of Jesus, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. So we have both Christmas and Easter mingled together here in verse 16, that the Son of God has come down to earth, taken on human flesh where he previously had no flesh, And the one who existed from all eternity, the Son of God, was manifested in mortal flesh, a human body, just like yours, just like mine, the God-man, the Lord Jesus. Or as the uh, Apostle John says, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Now think to yourself, what does that mean? Manifested in the flesh. That God who is unchanging, God the undying, steps onto the scene of human history in flesh with a real human body so that he might experience life in this fallen world, 
so that in our flesh he might bear the weight of our sin, so that in our flesh he might suffer and die. He makes himself vulnerable. Jesus is God, the undying, and yet he makes himself killable. That's an astounding thought. And that's precisely what happened. Of course, we remember the story that Jesus is betrayed by Judas, arrested, beaten, tortured, placed on trial with false accusations. He goes to the cross and suffers innocently as a criminal. Pilate caving under the pressure of the mobs of people baying for the blood of Jesus, nailed onto the dreadful cross outside the walls at Jerusalem, suffers and dies. And at that moment on that Good Friday, it looks like absolute abject failure to Jesus' life and to his mission, right? But that's, of course, not the whole story. But at that time, it seemed hopeless. Now, I think it's a cultural thing that we just, we love comebacks. We love comeback stories. That's why people were so obsessed with Tiger Woods this time last week and, and why the 2016 Cubs World Series makes such a big deal down 3-1, to one, Game 5. Comebacks, right? But those are minuscule comebacks in light of this reality. That Friday he is dead and Sunday he is alive. That the stone is rolled away and Jesus Christ emerges raised for us. That's what Paul means when he says after he's manifest in the flesh, he is vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated could also be translated or or mean justified. Jesus Christ is justified by the Spirit. That is to say that when the sinless Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross not for his own sake, but for our sake, that we who are sinners might have one who is innocent to go forward before us to bear the weight of our sin. And when Jesus dies, the Father looks upon that sacrifice and recognizes the worthiness of the sacrifice and raises Jesus from the dead to confirm that that sacrifice is worthy to pay for your sins. That that sacrifice of Jesus is worthy to pay for all the sins of all who would ever believe in him. And therefore the resurrection is the vindication, the proof, the evidence, the seal that this Christ and none other is the hope of all the world. And the resurrection is the vindication of that. And so therefore the resurrection means that Jesus Christ has been vindicated and justified in human flesh for sinners. So that all who come to him to receive and rest upon him, to turn from their sins and trust in him, find full forgiveness both in this life and for all eternity. That's what the resurrection means. Manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. But then, secondly, what does it matter? Like, what is the point? Why does it matter that we are here on this Easter Sunday to recognize the resurrection? Again, as I said, it matters more than anything in the, all the world. But Paul says in this second group of statements that he is seen by the angels and also proclaimed among the nations. Seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations. Now, throughout Jesus' earthly life and ministry, he was always attended by angels, wasn't he, as we think about him? They sang at his birth. They proclaimed his birth. They were with him in the desert of temptation. 
They listened along with his disciples to the teaching in Galilee. They strengthened him in his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. They guarded his tomb, and it was the angels who rolled the stone away. It was the angels who proclaimed the resurrection. They witnessed his ascension and told of the promise of his return. They are present witnesses and spectators to all the life of Jesus. That's what Paul means when he says, seen by the angels. But there's a qualification here. The angels are only ever spectators. They're only ever spectators. The angels are different from us. That might seem an obvious point. That is to say that angels are sinless, glorious, heavenly beings. They're not like us, human creatures. They're not like us who are sinners. They don't share our experiences. But that also means that because the angels are sinless, the angels are not the object of Jesus' redeeming love like you and I are. The angels don't have because they don't need a Savior. Now, that's really something to think of here. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that the angels long to look at these things. They long to peer into the mysteries of Jesus Christ. They watch in awe as Jesus lives and dies and rises and ask, what does this, what does this mean? They gaze with wonder and amazement and say, what astonishing love Jesus must have for these people. They are astonished as they wonder and are amazed. They long to look upon these things. And when Peter uses the word to describe angels longing to look, it's the same word that describes what John does on Easter morning when he rushes to the tomb and then kind of cranes his neck to look down in the tomb. He longs to look inside and peer at the mysteries of the glories of the empty tomb and ask the question, what does this mean? And the angels look upon Jesus and his ministry and they say, what does this mean? And they are amazed. They contemplate the ministry of Jesus, but they do not receive the ministry of Jesus. They observe from the outside, but you don't and I don't and the disciples didn't. Because this was done for us. Jesus didn't die and rise for the angels. He died and rose for us. And so all they do is look upon him, seen by the angels. And this is the message that they proclaim. This is the message that the disciples proclaim, that Jesus is risen, that Jesus lives. And it is, as Paul says in this fourth statement, Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. It's interesting, isn't it, that the disciples go from cowering in fear on Friday when they are assuming that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them, when the Romans come after them too, that they're going to be crucified as well perhaps. They go from cowering behind closed doors to then receiving Jesus Christ in resurrection glory who says to them, I have been sent by the Father to do this work and now I have accomplished it and so therefore I'm going to send you to go and tell people about what I have done. As I have been sent by the Father, so I am sending you in my name. And they go from cowering in fear to boldly proclaiming the resurrection in Jerusalem and in Athens and in Rome. And as Paul says, 
all the nations. You see, Jesus is king, not just of the Jews, but he is king of all people and all nations. And all nations receive this good news, not just the people of Judaism. He is the hope of all people to bless the nations, which is what it means when God promised to Abraham that he would bless the nations, Jesus Christ. You know, people want to ask this question. Is Jesus inclusive? Is Jesus inclusive? Does he exclude anyone? And the answer is that Jesus Christ excludes none who come to him in faith and trust. Not a single one. No matter who they are, no matter what they have done, all find in Jesus Christ coming in faith a true Savior, that all sin can be forgiven in Jesus' name. And the resurrection matters because it proclaims the truth, the truth that the angels witnessed and the truth that the disciples declare among the nations, as Paul says. So the meaning of the resurrection, why it matters, secondly and now finally in this last stanza of two statements, what difference does it make? What difference does it make for you and I today that Jesus Christ is alive? This last couplet, it's very clear that the difference that the resurrection makes comes as we respond to this good news that Jesus Christ is, at the end of verse 16, as you look at it, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Believed on in the world. It's the same truth proclaimed at the day of Pentecost, 40 days later, that Peter preached this message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe in Jesus Christ and your sins will be washed away. Believe in Christ and you will stand before God the Father one day, justified, accounted righteous in Jesus Christ, forgiven of all your sins. And the gospel calls for a response. And the only appropriate response is faith. Believed on in the world, Paul says. You know, the last time they did a global study on this point, it was done across a census of 200 nations worldwide, and the number reported some 2.18 billion people in the world who confessed the name of Jesus. 2.18 billion. And the global population today is about 7.3 billion. I know because I Googled it yesterday. Now, 2.18 billion among 7.3 is roughly 30%. And at the resurrection, there was only about 11 disciples. And then Acts chapter 1 tells us that altogether, there was only about 120 people in Jerusalem who cared, who believed. 120 to 2.18 billion people, if the numbers are true, who do what? Believe upon the name of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wants you to be counted among them who believe upon his name, who believe in Jesus Christ. All that they had to offer, that first 120 people, was this story of this Galilean carpenter executed on a criminal outside the hill in Jerusalem. And within one generation, the gospel goes out into all the world as far as Spain in the Apostle Paul's lifetime. 
the end of the earth, so that men and women and boys and girls from every walk of life come to believe in their hearts that this Jesus is in fact the Savior of the world. And if you believe that today, it is because Jesus is believed on in the world. Again, Easter confronts us. What is your faith? What is your trust? What is your hope? And Jesus Christ is extended as the hope of all the world. And then finally, this very last line, it says that Jesus was taken up in glory. Jesus lives, he dies, he rises again. 40 days later, he ascends back up into heaven. That where the story of Jesus began, Jesus returns back. And it's to that place of eternal glory that our Lord Jesus has entered into. And Jesus will bring with him one day all who have trusted in him. To be with him where he is. As he is offered in the gospel. The resurrection makes all the difference in the world. Because it transforms your life both here and now. And prepares you for the world to come. Paul intends here in this hymn of faith, to captivate your mind, to grab your heart and ask, do you love Christ? Do you have love for Christ today in your heart? I woke up this morning to the news, maybe you saw it, eight different bombs going off in Sri Lanka, hitting at least three different churches. 200 Sri Lankan Christians are dead in church on Easter morning. And why were they there? To do what Paul says, to confess the mystery of godliness, the great hope of life in the face of death. The world may look upon those 200 as victims. And in one sense they are, but in a greater sense they are victors through Jesus Christ, aren't they? And so will you be. So will I one day. Great indeed we confess. Great indeed we trust. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and in him we find endless hope, both for time and eternity. May you know it, and may you find all the joy that that gospel message proclaims. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his perfect life, his atoning death, his glorious resurrection, to be Lord of all. Lord, we want him to be Lord and King of our lives as well. So we pray, Spirit, that you would move upon our hearts and make us fit and prepared to be a room for Jesus, to be a place where the Lord Jesus might live in our hearts through faith today on this glorious Easter day. We thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and we praise you endlessly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.